Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast, and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated. Also, I have a new album coming out called Comeback World. For tour dates and more information, please visit josepharthur.com and follow me on Instagram, joseph underscore arthur. Today's episode is Michael Imperioli. I'm putting you, you know what? That's great. I actually took Willie Niles. You did? I did, and I read like si- I read like six chapters. So you'll give him this one? Or no, I'm going to give, because you signed it to him. I'll give this one to you. Yeah, and I, I want you to sign it. It's, it's fantastic, man. It's, you don't uh, want a book signed to Willie Niles? <laughs> that's kind of funny, too. I'm supposed to give it to you. Should we start? Yeah, we're Jump starting. In. We drop in. There we are. All right. Michael Imperioli. Is that how you say it? That's exactly right. Imperioli. Joining us on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks. What's the name of the podcast? Come to Where I'm From. I like that. It's the name of my second album. That's a good name. Yeah. I want to give you my new album. What's the name of that? Comeback World. Listen, I've been reading this book. I I haven't gotten all the way through it, but it's, uh, it's awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Which book is that, Joe? The perfume burned his eyes. It's your, it's your debut novel, right? Debut novel. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. How did you? How did you do this? Like, it, like how did you come up with the, the concept of it? The characters. Mm. Like, how close does it resemble, your life? Because immediately, I haven't gotten all the way through it. I just got it yesterday, but I, I it was a page turner. Yeah. And it immediately draws you into the central character. It feels very personal. It feels like almost like an autobiography. Right. That's good. That's a compliment. It's it's um it's not an autobiography. I mean, there are some parallels because this kid is born and grows up in Jackson Heights. Mm-hmm. So, he was born in 1961. And the story starts in 19... 19- Is that when you were... When were you born? I was born in 66. So in oh, okay. 1977, when the story takes place... Right. I was 11. Yeah. So I was not in New York. I was not in Manhattan. I was right outside the city in Mount Vernon. But I came to the city at 17, 1983. Um, and even though, like, Jackson Heights in Manhattan is very close, they're very different worlds. Or they were then. They probably still are. So I know that experience of coming from someplace that's not far, but being in this kind of creative, crazy, exciting world of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I said it in 77 because I have more, I, I like the art and the world that was going on here at the time. Yeah. But um, that's really where the stories diverge. I mean, none of the events are true. I mean, some of the biographical stuff, Lou Reed is one of the characters in the book and his girlfriend, Rachel. Some of the biographical stuff about him is true for the time. Mm-hmm. Did he have an iron cross in his blonde hair? I don't uh, remember that. Oh, yeah. I, that, I'll, that's I'll a, show you some photos. That's a real thing? Yeah, he had it shaved uh, into his head around that time. And you keep having him smell like kerosene. What's that all about? Well, when someone is uh, <laughs> shooting speed for days, oh. you know, that kind of, that sweat that comes off his yeah. your body. There's chemical. It's Chemi- a very distinctive. A chemical sweat. Like cleaning fluid, kerosene, and BO, and tobacco. Yeah. Booze. And whatever that poison does to you when you right. sweat it out in the heat, 
It yeah. stinks. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that the Coney Island Baby Lou Reed era? Um, well, actually, Coney Island Baby was written, dedicated to Rachel, his uh -huh. girlfriend. So, yeah, around then. Actually, later in the book, he begins to write Street Hassle. Right. There's uh -huh. a scene in the book where he's actually writing it because he breaks up with his girl. And uh, Street Hassle was inspired by that breakup. I didn't know that. Um, but so I started writing a coming of age story. Turn his mic down, your mic up. Leave my <laughs> mic where it is. I started writing a coming of age story about a 16 year old boy because my son, my middle child, 2013 was 16 and he was going through teenage stuff and I was just trying to find a way to relate. So I started writing this story, not about him, but trying to get into that head again mm -hmm. so I could relate better to him. About three months into the writing, Lou died. And mm -hmm. Lou was not a character in the book at the time. And uh, besides being a real artistic hero of mine right, and an inspiration to me, yeah. uh, we became friends around 2000. And yeah. uh, he, you know, um, his death had hit me on a number of levels, as I know it did you. Yeah. Um, I know you were, your album is great, the tribute. Oh, thank you. And I know you loved him. Oh, and, um, yeah, totally beyond. You know, I mean, as a New Yorker, as a fellow artist, just as someone, as a fan, I mean, when he died, it was like the end of a lot of things in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll always have him, but we won't have him. I feel him like he's like a spirit guide to me. Totally. Fully. I mean, so yeah. I put him in the book and, yeah. and kind of every day I'd sit down and I'd be with Lou. It was great. Yeah. You know, imagining what he was doing in the story at the time. And that's how the book was born. Yeah. So it just came... From your imagination, all these imagination. All, all these characters. Yeah. yeah. It's genius, dude. Yeah. Thank you. It's Thank really you. like it's over the top. Like, cause like the thing is, is like you're you're a really good actor. Everybody knows that, you know, that like that goes without saying. But it's like so when somebody who's tr attempting another realm in the arts, yeah, you know, particularly like writing a novel, and it's a first novel. Your tendency would be to think like, "Oh man, uh, you know, it's a vanity at, at, project." Well, it's or so stupid, at yeah. best, it's going to be a developmental. But it really feels like fully like I was just blown over by it because it's like fully like it's full on. It just like draws you super in, and you're just like, "I want to keep reading oh, it." That's like, great. Yeah, and not that. all, but especially our fractured attention spans nowadays. I know for a novel to grab you and like make you want to read it. Yeah. Like that's, oh, that's great. That's, I'm happy uh, to hear that. Yeah, I'm just, I'm very impressed. I mean... Uh, I almost said proud of you. But I, like, I'll take the pride. Like, I'll take your pride. Like, you know, I've had a parallel career as a writer in addition to well, this. Well, that's true. So I've written you, screenplays. You wrote screenplays for like Spike with Lee. Spike and Summer Sam. And uh, I wrote yeah. directed a movie Sopranos called The Hungry episode. Ghost. I wrote some Sopranos. Right. I've wrote, written a lot of things that have not been produced. Right. And that started a while ago. So, so you've been writing a long time. Yeah, but fiction really has become my love. This, not not yeah. as a before I wrote the book as yeah. a reader. Yeah. In the last twenty years, it just consumes more and more of my life. And um, I have a good buddy who has a book coming out this month, Gary Lippman, his first novel, mm -hmm. and he was there last night. And one day he said, "You know, you should write a book." And I was, I was kind of crazy enough to 
take him and believe it. And I was like, he right. gave you the idea to do it. Well, you know, sometimes you just need a little shove, you know, because I've been I attempted short stories in fiction, but it was always yeah. I, I couldn't get it. But there was a germ of this kid there. And then when I found his when I started writing in the first person, it just started to flow like a journal, you know, yeah. inside his head rather than the third person omniscient observer who know that was too big for me so getting yeah. it, the scope smaller helped i think that's what makes it feel personal too yeah 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 and so did you do any like like studying like did you like take oh writer first novel writer workshop you know that type of thing no or like just, or did you just like no morning pages the artistic way any of that none of that a lot of writing but uh, but really just reading a lot and when something really resonated when i would read something that really blew me away try to say well why what about this touches me why am why do i connect to this writer and i've read other great writers that i couldn't get through their books because it didn't resonate and other people are blown away I'm, it's not i'm not judging the quality but not everything like with music not everything resonates yeah however however some people it may be their favorite thing in the world and you that's listen, you're true like, it's technically great. I some, mean, inspired, but it leaves you cold, maybe. Yeah, I, I can recognize the quality in some stuff and still not really kind of give a fuck about it. Yeah, and then some Excuse stuff is, is rough and primitive, but it resonates and yeah, touches you. Right. I mean, you can't, you like know. Iggy Pop. Yeah. Like a lot of loose stuff, too. Like, yeah, a lot of stuff. Especially you know? on Street Hassle. That's a great record. It is. It's a great record. It's funny. It's nasty, funny, yeah. sad, tragic. So what are some examples of some of the writers that really moved you? That um, Isaac Besheva Singer was a Jewish. He was a, his family were Holocaust survivors, but he, he lived in New York for in like the 50s, 60s. He wrote for the Jewish Daily Forward newspaper, but he uh, won the Nobel Prize, I think, in the 70s. But he he. He had a very simple wrote a lot of short stories and a bunch of novels, but he had a very simple voice but he had a deep compassion for the human experience and that's what got me compassion for the human yeah experience. like jack kerouac was a big influence i think kerouac is a very underrated writer despite his lofty status of as this beat you know beat hero hero but as a writer i think he was very underrated because he you know on the road is the one the majority of people associated with that's not one of my favorites of his well, and that's what he's known for because it was his story. But his actual skill as a writer, I think, is very underrated. He was a brilliant, extremely well-read guy, extremely well-educated guy, and extremely technically proficient as a writer. I love Tristessa. I love Big Sur, Dharma Bombs. Those are my favorites, and I think mm -hmm. they're towering works of literature. What about uh, Mexico City Blues? Fantastic. That's the book of poems. He was a tremendous poet. He, yeah. uh, the scripture of the golden, golden eternity, which are poems really about Buddhism, and he had an incredible knowledge of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And you're, and you're into Buddhism too. I'm a Buddhist. Yeah, you're, you're a Buddhist. My wife and I became Buddhist about twelve years ago. Huh. In Tibetan tradition. Okay. Mm. And you meditate and stuff like that. Yeah, I meditate, and study. Try to be a good person. <laughs> yeah, I want to. I want to ask you about that, but I want to stay on Kerouac for a second because it's interesting to me how. Do you ever see those like later day interviews? 
course on the Buckley show. Yeah, when he's all fucked up. Yeah, and he's like just gave up on life. Horrible. And I mean, he's like back when I first started started seeing it, I was like, oh, he was old, but he's like thirty five. <laughs> like he died. Dude, at it's like, like he was very like, young. He was you know, in his forties when he died. Right. <laughs> like you know how he died, right? Alcoholism, right? Well, alcoholism weakened his system a lot, but he was living in Florida. Uh huh. He married a girl that he dated when he was in high school, very late in life. Mm -hmm. He knew her family, her brothers, yeah. and he needed somebody to basically take care of him and take care of his mother. So he married this woman. He was living with her and the mother in uh -huh. Florida, and he wasn't really writing, and he was drinking every day, and he went to a bar with a friend of his yeah. in Florida, and it was mostly an African-American bar. He was, I think, maybe the only white guy, and he was drunk, and somebody kind of, call, I think, called him, uh, you know, like, fag or something. Uh -huh. And... He got the shit kicked out of him, and Is he that? wouldn't fight. He didn't like. He didn't. He was very nonviolent and wouldn't fight. And he got beaten. Re they started a fight somehow, either with a friend, yeah. some drunk guy. They called him that slur, and a fight ensued. And he got his ass kicked, hmm. and a few days later, he died of internal bleeding. That's crazy. That's how Jaco Pistorius died. Really? Yeah, he got beat up like. Uh and then, yeah, died later in the hospital. And I never knew that. I found out that recently. It really broke my heart. I didn't know that. That's weird that I didn't know that. It's weird that I didn't. I've known him. I've known his work for years. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. But yeah, now this is a guy who understood Buddhism, yet the the alcoholism trumped I think, it. I think it trumped everything. And he, the bitterness about this is what I'm saying. He was underrated. He was. He became this hippie icon and he did not feel like a hippie he was a very spiritual guy right. it wasn't about tune in drop out and all that it was really about c compassion the word beat he coined that through from beatitude beatific mm. yeah you know he he was a very religious guy his brother died his older brother died when he was a boy mm -hmm. and this kid was having visions of saints and Christ, and the priests were writing yeah, it all down. He was Catholic, right? As, yeah, as well as French, Buddhist. Yeah, and French-Canadian and Catholic. Yeah. And, and the priest wrote down all his brother's visions, and his brother died as a boy and was this kind of almost like quasi-saint. Saint. Yeah. yeah. So he grew up with that kind of mysticism. That's wild. And Neil Cassidy died in a very weird way, like frozen on a train track at San Miguel. Walking. Like he, Do you know that? Do you, he, yeah. He I, well, I've, I've walked down those train oh, tracks really? before. Yeah, dude. I used to go there all the time. <laughs> After being up for days on speed. Dude, it's like they, they die these tragic deaths. Yeah. I just don't get giving up on life. I mean, okay, I can understand... Well, addiction could do that. Yeah, addiction. But I've dealt with that too. I don't know. Maybe I just, or maybe it's different times or something, and there's way more ways out of it. You know. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, and everybody's different. And everybody's different. His, uh, but yeah, the stuff on Buckley. There's that movie, What Happened to Jack Kerouac, which I love, and and Ginsburg talks about when Jack was on Buckley, and Jack got drunk before the show, and he was basically set up by Buckley to have this you know, this right-wing guy and this professor kind of denigrating the hippies and trying to bait Jack. And Jack was bored and just kind yeah. of wanted to talk about writing and he just didn't, you know. I mean, that bit would be as funny as, like, Serge Gainsbourg, like, with Whitney Houston on that one show where he was... Oh, I never saw that. Yeah, it's like there's, a, you know, it would be funny if he recovered his life. 
Right. It's only tragic in that he never recovered his life. Right. And then, so that's kind of the last impression you're right. left with. I know. You know, there was no redemption. Right. And Lou managed to transcend all that and Lou, go on till his seventies and be creative. And yeah, be vital Lou and completely transcended all that. He did. hundred percent. He, he could have died very easily a long time ago. He a hundred percent transcended it. Never became a nostalgia act to just no, tour dude, and do the hits. His was, last fucking album is the most hardcore, <laughs> craziest lyrics ever written I know. by anybody I know. in rock and roll music. And then it was a big, this from the press. I'm putting up two middle fingers for the people like listening only and, and uh and it's the most forward thinking craziest and he thought it was his best album I and know. then david bowie said so it was his, bowie right yeah, yeah yeah you told me that did i i don't know you told me um, that when we met uh, yeah you told me that about bowie, bowie i didn't, loved it lulu, i didn't yeah. know that lulu yeah yeah no so, i love take no prisoners oh yeah that's my favorite yeah because it's it actually influenced my book a lot because it's it's really like spending an evening with Lou at, in 78 or 79 when it was mm-hmm. made. And his, it's just hilarious and his banter. But the performances of like Berlin and Coney Island Baby and Saturday Love are tremendous. Mm. And the band, I don't even know who was with him at the time, but the band is, I mean, it's powerful. And you can read, it's at the bottom line, but I love that record. It was mm. a double album, but it's really good. Yeah. I miss the bottom line. Oh, what a great place. Yeah. When you're writing a, like a character based on a, a real guy, Lou Reed, but you're fictionalizing it, what's that tightrope dance like? Well, first of all... Because you also know, like, even though he had already passed when you right. decided to make him a character, you, you certainly know other New York luminaries are going right. to be paying attention. Of course. And well, I wouldn't have written it if he was alive, first of all, just because... It would be too weird. I think it's a bit of an invasion. Right. And you know, when someone dies, or if someone's famous, yeah. once they die, or if they're famous, they have no right to privacy or <laughs> libel laws or something like that. Like they don't apply anymore. Is that right? That's what my lawyer, because I had a lawyer look at the book. Oh, you're you saying know? like actually legally. I was like yes. thinking moralistically. Well, no, maybe not moralistically. But I, I wrote this as a, really as a tribute and as a, as oh, out of respect know. and love. Of, of course. course. You know. But I tried to really, you know, I watched a lot of interviews over the years and I read a lot about that period of time, yeah. interviews and biographical material, just, you know, and, and just tried to, you know, go there and just, all right. So the kid walks in the apartment and Lou's there with his girlfriend. What are they doing? What's he saying? What state of mind is he in? I mean, yeah. he lived for a couple of years on the East Midtown, like in the 50s, near for East End Avenue, That's so which weird. is weird. That's, That's very weird. Yeah, with Rachel, who was transgender girlfriend. Yeah. Do you go speed. into that in the book, like later? Because I'm only at like chapter six. Oh yeah. You go into the fact that she's transgender. Yeah, very okay. subtly. It's not. It doesn't become how a big does the, issue. How does uh, it's Matt? How does yeah. how does Matt discover that, or does he? He sees. Uh, actually, I didn't. Re- I actually did not read the, the section he sees in the light that her beard is coming through a little bit because uh, Rachel I don't think was not on not sure if she was on hormones like there's some photos you could see that she wasn't right. really hiding the fact that she was yeah. uh, transgendered yeah. but um, that's kind of par for the course for Lou Reed what was weird to me is that he was living on East 50 something street instead of the village or, da- or Lower East Side yeah. 
what was his neighbors thing? They see this guy who had been up for three days recording metal machine music and, you know, with sunglasses, stinking yeah. with this girlfriend, and they're living, you know, the doorman building. I mean, what the fuck was that like? Yeah. That fascinated me. I think about, like, uh, do you, you ever think about Lester Bangs at all? Well, there's a section in this book where he... Lou writes a letter to. Mm-hmm. I don't mention Lester by name. I talked to Lou about Lester. He I writes a, a letter story. to Lester in the book. Really? Yeah, you'll see it when you get there. That's killer because I I happen to know like Lou like we were walking down. I forget because I was a Lester Bangs fan as well. Like the Carburetor Dung book, whatever that was. Like his collected writings and the and this, a lot of the Lou Reed stuff is is really funny um but it was also mean-spirited towards rachel and that was the thing because i asked lou later in you know later it's like hey are do you what do you think of lester bangs and he was just like you know basically like i'm glad he's dead kind of like it was just like you know like no mercy like no i was like really no nostalgic like anything and he was like no well you'll see the letter lou had no like it was like yeah it was like once you cross a certain line yeah there wasn't any kind of like what do you call it like Oh fuck it! There's it no, all comes out in the wash. Or there's whatever. no middle ground. There's no middle no. ground. That's the letter. Yeah. Is this like, and this is just coming from you? That's huh? I made that up. Yeah, uh, I know that Lou was pissed at him, but that's where it comes. Do you want to read it? Sure. That would be cool. <laughs> really? You, yeah, you read excellent. Uh, I'll set it up because so that you understand the context, right? So yeah, we watched actually an episode. Or an episode. We wa- we watched a performance yesterday of Michael uh, performing parts of the book with some uh, esteemed colleagues. Yeah, and it was excellent and very like New York art. Like I'm sure Lou would totally have appreciated that energy that you're bringing to I think the so. city. I'd like to think so as well. Like that's- he loves theater. He went to the theater a lot. Yeah. He loved movies and New York stories and stuff. So. Yeah. Um. All right, I'll read a little bit. Okay, please. We got, we got a minute? Yeah, of course, dude. We got as much time as you're, you can afford. So I'm reading from the boy's point of view. Shortly after I was formally dubbed Tim, because Lou gives him a name, Tim. You'll find out if you read the book. Lou gave me an unsealed envelope with a folded piece of paper inside. The envelope was addressed to a man in care of a music magazine located in Los Angeles. He told me to keep the letter until he was ready to send it and that I was welcome to read it, but might be better off if I didn't. Be sure to wash your hands after if you do read it, he laughed. Better yet, wear gloves. He explained that he was afraid of the force contained within the envelope, and that once unleashed on its target, some of its destructive powers could leak out into the world. This energy had the capability to alter the angle of the Earth's axis, so he wasn't sure if he was ever going to send it. I was to keep it in a safe place, and await further instructions from him. I, of course, read the letter despite the warnings. It was handwritten in a manic, rabid print, each word tightly compacted and compressed, though the spaces between were generous. He had done things to the page itself. I'd rather not say what I imagine he did. It involved bodily fluids. But nevertheless, I'm glad I listened to him and wore the suggested gloves, which in my case were mittens. Before reading the letter, however, I asked Lou what had prompted him to write it. He said the intended recipient had published some extremely cruel 
and inhumane things about Rachel in a magazine article about Lou's last record. The following was Lou's defense of his lady's honor. January 15, 1977, 446 East 52nd Street, New York, New York, 10022. Dear unesteemed journalistic scum slash shallow size queen, I hereby supplicate through truest intent, purest pledge, duly sworn oath, and most high prayer, all the gods and demons who lit the fires, dropped the frogs, pissed the blood, who sent the swarms of locusts, malarial fleas, and poxid lice upon the house of Ramses. I beseech them to dump the turds of a million infectious buzzards upon your head, the feces infused with the syphilitic pus and madness of all the dead whores of Babylon and Baghdad. May the facsimile of manhood that lies between your legs wither, fester, and decay like the corpses that filled the pits of Buchenwald and Birkenau. May your manque genitalia become a faucet and font of the most fetid and diseased sewage ever to seep quiet through the veins of Calcutta and black-plagued London. And all the evils of the Aztec heart-eaters, the thousand and one Arabian Sahars, the most abhorrent, obscene, defiling, and profane spells and incantations in the entire canon of Hado's left-handed path, the Yanas, the Yantras, the Maras, the Mataris, the second face of Mordrake, the 107 adventitious stains, the 909 untimely Turkish deaths, the 51 omens of Jephthah, the hex of the 66 hairs, may they ceaselessly bear their malevolent and wicked fruit upon you and your house for generation upon generation, uninterrupted. Get the picture, motherfucker. From this day forth, I strictly and explicitly forbid you to hear any sound I have ever uttered, created, or recorded. Either spoken word or musical note, whether voice my own or instrument born. For you and yours, I now render and infuse every note, riff, vibration, every syllable with the potentiality described above. You are forewarned. Beware. Don't say I didn't tell you. You will reap tears from the filth you have sown, and happier I could not be. Yours in hate. Here he scrawled his indecipherable signature. Lou never mentioned the letter after he gave it to me that day. It remains in my possession, but is now sealed. That's fantastic. <laughs> he was pissed off. <laughs> yeah. You went through all religions there, right? Ah, the, the, whatever, the, ten, the ten plays. Whatever he can get. Whatever he can unleash. Revenge. Fantastic, <laughs> man. <laughs> Fuck, dude. You're a really good writer. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, the you know it reminds me, uh, and this is another compliment, it reminds me of a little bit, when you read it, it reminds me of Kerouac. Yeah, you know when he when he his his reading style is fantastic. Yeah. I'm sure it's it's uh, have affected you, me. <laughs> oh yeah, you've, I love have his Have you checked style. out his reading style? Oh, the yeah. Kerouac it's recordings, Steve Allen show. That's a great one. Y- yeah, I love how he reads. I think that's affected anyone who's yeah. come after him. It's a bit like anybody who listened to Jimi Hendrix play guitar. Right, that's true. You know, that's <laughs> like, true. you can't help it. it. Can't help it. Right. It's gonna affect you. But yeah, man, damn. It seems like the whole book is a tribute to Lou from the title. The title's from the song Romeo Had Juliet. And, I know. and what's the cover photo? Joe, can you show that's it? A, Where's that yeah, from? That's I, a I photo. About that. uh, I think his name was Joseph. Let me see the, the credit. And there's the Arthur, photo credit there's Arthur in there, too. Tell the guy. The guy's name was J- Joseph Sterling. 
He was a Chicago photographer. Uh, this was from a book of uh, photos called The Age of Adolescence from the late 50s to the mid 60s. I saw there was an article after Dennis Johnson died. They published one of his short stories. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Killer Joe. And I saw that photograph. Mm. And I was just finishing the book or just getting dealing with the publisher. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's got to be my cover. Wow. I wanted it to look like a Smith's album. Yeah, it good, does. Bro, good so, call. Cause I, like, is, yeah. I love the Smiths that and their album. Is, so yeah. when I saw the photo, I was like, I got to get it. So we tracked down the gallery. He passed away, but his widow was alive. And we told, we sent them the book, and they they were very reasonable. And we gave them you know, a bit of a fee, not that much, but they were kind, and we got to use it. So, That's great. Yeah. Who published it? Akashic Books out of... Uh, out of Brooklyn. Brooklyn, they're great uh, publishers. Lydia's done. Lydia Lunch has published some stuff with them, and um, he, uh, Johnny Temple, who started it, started it as a record label. He's a musician. He was in a uh, DC punk band called Boys Against Girls, mm-hmm. and he's great. They're um, they're just awesome. And you connected through Lydia Lunch with this? No, publisher, I. Or? Uh, or was it I, blind submissions or what? I googled best independent publishers in America. Uh huh. And they came up. They came up, and City Lights, who you know mm-hmm. was the Beats, and I love, and I love that bookstore. I so I wrote an email to City Lights and an email to Akashic, and City Lights never got back to me, and Akashic did. And it turned out the Johnny Temple, the publisher, and I had a mutual friend, so he vetted me through her because they only like to really work with people they're gonna get along with. Right. And whose work they like, obviously. So, uh, and they just gave it so much love and care, and continue to do so. And I, I, I love them. They're great. Congratulations, yeah. man! Thank you. I'm excited for you. Um, see, also seems like it. Could, it's like ready to be a movie or so. That's the plan. I yeah. mean, first I want to put it up. Last night was the first time I read it with other actors. Uh-huh. So I had two actors, Nomi Ruiz, who read Rachel, and a friend, E.J. Carroll, read she's, another character. She's great. She was really she good. Is, yeah. She was really good. So the next step, what I want to do is have about seven actors. Uh-huh. Maybe a couple of them read more than one character on stage, like a radio play. Uh, with Elijah Amiton, who played bass last night, and Lenny Kay wants to play guitar, mm-hmm. and we'll do it at Joe's Pub, and we'll read the characters, and uh, like a radio play. Right. That's the next step, because the, the live readings have been uh, just nice vibes and good experiences, and the more, I like, I like collaborating, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of magic in collaboration. Totally, totally, yeah. yeah. Um. I want to ask you, did did you ever get into Charles Bukowski? I like Charles Bukowski a lot. Yeah, me too. I think he's an he's I think he's an underrated writer. You know, because people are in love with the persona, and people want to dismiss it. Yeah. Yeah, but he's very very skilled, and he hides it too. Like he 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 makes it simplicity. He hides it in simplicity, but then there'll be a line where you're like, whoa, where you see the the, you know the real artistry. Well, Well, you were sort of like. I forget how you put it, but like the sort of, if you can feel like an empathetic vibration towards the characters within the book, maybe it's more inspiring. And like, like his coming of age story, Ham on Rye, right, is incredible. Really incredible. Yeah, I mean that's an incredible one. Um, and women is funny. Yeah, he's a, he's 
I, I prefer the, the the fiction to the poems. I like the poems a lot. Although as the poems well, as are well. good. I don't, I don't connect as much, but he, I find them really entertaining. I, I like exactly. You just move. You just you know you can't put them down, and it's funny. Yeah. Some of it's horrific, you know, yeah. scary and really really dark. Yeah. And. Uh, but I, I enjoy reading him a lot. But I think people are in love with the... I always say... The persona. If, if those books were written by like some yeah. spinster librarian woman living in the Midwest who never touched a drop of alcohol, would they still be as beloved and successful? Could they have been written? I don't well, know. I think what you're... Like the thread that is occurring to me right now is people whose persona overwhelms their output even though their output is bonkers, like on the level, like Kerouac's output is bonkers, but his persona was so right. bonkers. Same with Bukowski. I think another character that I equate that with is Mick Jagger, one of the greatest songwriters ever, but never really gets said to be that, all, you know, his directly. His writing is incredible. Yeah. So it's like, I, I don't know, maybe there's some, something to that, like where some, when somebody's persona is... Let's think a jigsaw puzzle, like the lyrics in that song. It's yeah. like, you know. Yeah. I mean, visionary. Like, yeah, that's when he, the psychedelic drugs started kicking in. But brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, but he's, in a way, I mean, like he has all the hits, but in a way he's kind of underrated. He's underrated. As a lyricist. That's what I right? mean, yeah. yeah. Like Beast of Burden. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. I ran to the Bowery Electric, where we are right now, actually, after your show, and sang... Uh, you did Salt, Salt, Salt of, the of the Earth. Yeah. That's a good album, right? That's, uh, yeah. Beggar's, is that Beggar's Banquet? Beggar's yeah, Banquet. That's a great one. Jigsaw Puzzle's on that, too, right? Yep. It's a good, that's one of my favorite ones. It's one of their best. Yeah. Top four. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Let It Bleed. You like that one? Yeah. Michael, as far as the book and Lou, in your mind, if he was alive today and you put it out with him in it, what would be his feedback to you? Um, well, it? I wouldn't have, first of all, just because. You said it's that, not. but let's assume but he did. What, here's the thing. I think what Lou tried to do in some ways with rock was to bring a literary sensibility, very different than Dylan's, you know. Yeah. With Dylan's, but his was much more in a fiction, like Edgar Allan Poe and things, you know. Uh, so having him be a character in literature i think is just in a way because of that but um wait go, I mean, expand on that what do you mean by that because he because i think because he was literary he, he brought a real literary quality to rock and roll i think yeah. you know with characters and this kind of the way he told stories yeah his delivery too yeah yeah so berlin to have a, to have a book that kind of tur turns that around on him I think is okay I actually sent it before I published it to Laurie Anderson what, yeah and I who I I've met I don't know I didn't know her like I knew Lou I knew Lou better than, than I know her but I, I she's wonderful and a great yeah. artist and I just said I wrote this book lose a character it's before you knew Lou and uh I just wanted you to hear get it from me and I just want you to, I don't, if you don't want to read it, I understand. If you do, I'd love it. If you want to tell me what you feel, if you don't, it's fine. I just, just know it came from love and respect for him because he was really kind to me. And she read it and she, she kind of read it almost on its own terms because she said, you know, I didn't know that Lou. Because Lou right. had very different phases in his life. Yeah. 
think she met him in the 90s. Uh-huh. So, but she appreciated it for what it was, and she, you know, she thought it had some interesting Lou-isms in right. it. So, that was a good, uh, I was happy to, you know, get so it to her. So, her response was... Was positive. Was positive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that must have been, I mean... What was it like when you're finished with the book? How long, for one, how long did this book take you to write? Oh, on and off, the better. Well, on and off, like it was three years, but I only wrote it when I was at home. Uh, when I was on location working during that time, which mm-hmm. I was quite a bit, I didn't write. I only wrote when I was home and had nothing else working to work on. Right. Because I would have to have a lot of chunks, stretches where I did every day at the same time, and the discipline of that. I, I couldn't do it in between other things. And would you like what would be your process? Waking up in the morning and going in, or going like, in in the morning, 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 just about four or five hours, and after that, and it's the burnt. law of diminishing returns. Yeah, and not all that four or five is actual writing. Some of no, it's just, a lot of it's just sitting at it and they're staring at a page, being and miserable, looking at your phone. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get it. But um, when you're first sending it out, how how nervy of a process was that? Like well, to Lori, to like publishers, to other friends, or did you, would you read as you were writing to like Gary, for instance, and get feedback, or did, were no. you in a, were you in a? I didn't, I didn't uh, read chain. it to anybody until it was completely done, and then I gave it to my wife. She was the first one to read it, and she said uh, the first thing she said was, uh, she said it's very beautiful. I hope you don't change any of it. Well, that's a great... <laughs> sounds like you married the right woman. Oh, I know I did. Man, and, um, lucky you, dude. And then I sent it to uh, <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates, who, whose work I like a lot. And she... Um, well, I wrote her a letter. Um, I had met her a long time ago. And I, I, I wrote her an email. She writes books all the time. Like, she's, like, uh-huh. incredibly prolific. And, but yet she... And she teaches at Princeton and Berkeley... Yet she answers emails in 10 minutes. I don't know how that works. But mm-hmm. uh, she, I asked her some advice about publishing. Because if you want to get something done, have a busy person do it. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you know. I asked her about publishers. <laughs> She's done some work with Akashic, and she really likes them. And she said, listen, I'm in the middle of teaching. The holidays are coming up. I got a great papers. I'm probably not going to be able to read it, but you can, you can send it if you want. The next morning, she, she had it. finished it right. and, and gave me some you know some uh feedback which was really interesting the next morning well i get that though Crazy. man i started reading it last night at the rolling after i performed while i was backstage at the bowery electric and i read through oh, six wow. chapters while everybody else was performing dude so you're so you're busy and you get stuff done exactly and so then you got to do your podcast but, the next morning well yeah <laughs> so like i get that but that's what kind of book it is uh, it's just a page turner it's like uh, oh i was saying more about her that she's just incredible. i know but it is your book too yeah. i mean she might be incredible too but she if, is incredible. but if but if the book was like a, a chore to get a through chore. yeah that's true she wouldn't have got through it dude oh, that's true too. <laughs> like, you know, maybe what was the feedback from her and we'll go off the book. I, I'm just excited about yeah. it. Yeah, so um, like, she, you know, she, she had some interesting ideas about. You know, I didn't change anything, but I did after the first draft. I added some material because the first draft was shorter than this. That's than funny. The final thing. So and and my editor, you know, had some said the same thing that it needed it fleshed a, out here. There's a there. section that it needed to be expanded, and then I went back in and and did it. Uh, but I didn't really change anything that's there. Just okay. expand it a little bit. That's cool. 
All right, well, let's pivot then. All right, I want to go back to Lou, how you met Lou and how you, how the relationship formed. Well, uh, I lived in the village in the 90s, right? And so did Lou. And I would, you know... He was the, around. He was around. So was like Ginsburg and Corso and Herbert Hunk. I mean, that... that Andy Warhol in the 80s, I would see. I mean, it was fantastic. Did you, did you see Andy Warhol? Once, I met him on the street by Grand Central Station. That's insane. He was very nice. Lou loved Andy Warhol. Loved him. Fucking thought he was the smartest dude ever. Loved him. But yeah. Rightfully so. I never knew Lou, and, and I, I got cast in a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol, right? Oh, yeah, I saw that. about Valley Salons. I played on Dean in the movie. So I was at the Knicks game, Madison uh-huh. Square Garden. Yeah. And I see Lou on the escalator. Uh-huh. And I'm like, this is my opportunity to talk to Lou. Because yeah. Dean and him were friends. So, but the problem was Lou was really pissed off that they were making a movie about this crazy woman who almost killed oh, his dear Andy Warhol. Glorifying her. Because he hated her. She right. Was, she was a pretty disturbed woman who actually contributed to Andy's death. Cause well, of course, yeah. So I see him on Lesko and go up to him and he, I don't think he knew who I was. Not a lot of people did then, but some people did whatever and i said hi i'm a big fan um i'm an actor and i got cast in this movie i know you're not happy they're making it it's called i shot any world he goes i think it's despicable that they're making a movie uh. about that psychotic woman and i'm like yeah i know but um nevertheless i got cast and i'm playing on dean and he went good luck and he turned away from me so yeah like that's right? not gonna work i i already know like but i already then, know that's not gonna work but dude. then he like looked over his shoulder at me once or t- he looks over his shoulder and he comes back and he goes listen do your work have a good time and just know he was very very funny and see that that's it. the sweet part of lou because there's that 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 encapsulates lou in a really great way that's because the germ of the book yeah what do you mean? You'll see when you read it. Okay. Because that's that made a big impression on me. Right. Oh yeah. Well, there's that scene that you actually read last night. Yeah. Where it was like, yeah, the first yeah. thing with with the character Matt was like <laughs> Lou being hardcore. Yeah. And Lou was like that with me too. Even though the very first time. When did you meet him? What well, year? I met Lou. He brought like because I was auditioning for Peter Gabriel's Real World label. And I was like Which a young. They signed you to. They signed me, yeah. yeah and, I, and I was a young singer songwriter. And then Peter Gabriel brought Lou Reed to my first audition gig. Here, and, yeah, at the Fez. And Lou Reed oh, brought I... his DAT recorder, digital audio tape, and recorded the gig at Fez. At Fez, dude, I was like, you can imagine, I was a bass player like for most of the time. I just started singing and writing songs. And How old were you? I was twenty, twenty-three or twenty-four, something like that. And I was just like terrified. I had started singing when I was 21. I did. I started kind of late, and uh, it was just overwhelming because I was already. I was a huge fan of Lou Reed, you know. And I had prepared myself mentally to play for Peter Gabriel, but like when he, when the extra added weight of Lou was that all of a sudden thrown into the mix, it was like this is too fucking much, y'all. <laughs> like this is like, can somebody stop can this? We like, can we reschedule? You know? And Lou had his tape recorder. And Lou brought his tape recorder too, like to tape it so that Peter could take the tape back to England and play it for the people at Real World. You know, and I was working minimum wage jobs up until then, so it was like this was my break, or else back to minimum wage jobs. That's a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure, dude. Uh-huh. But it worked, and then and then we went and ate dinner 
down the street and I was between Lou and Peter and then Dolly Parton was in the booth next to us. And they Where were, was it? Do you remember the restaurant? I don't remember the name of the restaurant, but it was right down one block from the Fez. So and and I, that's when Peter said that Dolly Parton was his first choice for Don't Give Up to be the uh, duet with him that Kate Bush ended up singing. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and they were both kind of blown away by Dolly Parton. And then Lou said to uh, me, hey, you know, it's, yeah, don't, make sure you don't sign a publishing deal. And uh, don't give away your publishing. And he was like, you know, it was like I was getting kind of big brothered by Lou in a way. Like, you know, he was mentoring me to a degree. So he liked what you did, obviously. He did, Because if he didn't. No, he, he would. He would not fake it. No. no, and then Peter was like, "Hey, uh, we're actually trying to sign him to a publishing deal as well." <laughs> so it was really instantly pretty awkward. That's great. <laughs> yeah, and then Lou was like, "Oh, I'm sorry," because Peter and Lou were trying to be like friends too, or becoming. They were new friend, new friends. You know, right? They respected each. other They respected a lot, each yeah. other a lot. Yeah, but like I like Lou actually covered uh one of peter's songs yeah, for when for, that album. for the album of scratch your back scratch your. he right. he covered was it for Sol- amnesty or something like that was it i don't know he game? covered salisbury hill oh really and and uh and he ch- and the and i and i was talking to lou like um because i was on that record too i did shock the monkey and lou said yeah i had to change one line and i was like what he goes well, instead of you'd have thought I was a nut, I had to change it to you'd have thought I was a slut. <laughs> so Lou changed Perfect. that one lyric That's into good. slut, which is like genius, you know? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Isn't that funny as hell? Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. One other Lou story I got was I was like sitting with him at a coffee shop and then like this super hot girl comes up and like fanned out on Lou and was like oh my god I love you I love you and Lou was nice you know but he was just kind of like it didn't matter who was fanning out on him if it was a you know really attractive woman she wouldn't get any more extra treatment than anyone else so he was still kind of like prickly with her he was like okay okay like that it was nice enough but it wasn't you know right and then she left and I was like Man, I almost used you to try to get her phone number. <laughs> and he just looked up at me and goes, well, why didn't you? <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You're right. And I went outside and I got her phone number. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Michael, after that meeting at the garden, when did you see him again? Um, uh, I saw him at a party, but I... She still didn't really know who I was, and I was. It was just after Magic and Loss. I know you love that record. Oh yeah, Me too. man, that's yeah. a great one. And I just said, "Oh, I was listening to you today." And um, where where was this? This at, was at a party. At a party at a premiere. But I didn't really become friends with him till after The Sopranos was on. Mm-hmm. It was so, around 2000. He had an album come out called Ecstasy, mm. and he was playing at the Knitting Factory. So I got my manager. It was sold out, and I said, can you get me tickets? So she called his publicist, a woman named Annie. Annie O'Hein. Shout out Annie O'Hein. So Annie got my first publicist. Got me tickets. Really? She, yeah. She was wonderful. Yeah. She was really nice to me. I haven't seen her in a while. But she got me tickets, 
So we get to the knitting factory, and they said, oh, you, you have seats in the... There was a little balcony at the knitting factory. Yeah. There was with my name on it. I didn't expect that or anything. And then mm -hmm. the, the show was fucking great. He was just... He played the blue mask, and it was tremendous. And and then we were getting up to leave, and uh, and he said, you know, Lou wants to see you backstage, which yeah. I didn't know he knew who I was or if he knew I was there or anything. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And we went back, and he just came over and grabbed me and hugged me and was like i love your work and yeah and he was it was to me i mean that was like my hero you know yeah. that's a big deal <laughs> so and then we kept in touch and uh you know he uh he helped me out when um i needed some of his posters for a movie that i directed and uh, some he sent some rare what movie it's called The Hungry Ghosts. Oh, right. It's an indie movie. And uh, he came to the first screening in New York. And um, we did a lot of benefits. We were both involved in the Tibet Fund and the Jazz Foundation. Uh -huh. I still am. But, uh, and we hosted some of them. And he played at both of the, those events. And uh, he was also in, into Buddhism and meditation. And he was working on a tai book Chi. about... Yeah, Tai Chi. And he was working on a book about meditation right before he died. My last email with him is about he was he asked me for uh some quotes about meditation for the book uh -huh. and that was my last exchange with him what did he ask you for he just wanted like um your insight in in, it? yeah how it how i see it how it affects me what what do i get you know i think he was just getting compiling dif different people's experiences about it and i think that's coming out i think laurie finished it that's um, great yeah what did you say do you remember I said, I think I said, you know, um, basically, Buddha's teachings can be distilled into three very simple concepts. One, do no harm. Two, cultivate virtue, you know, be good, uh -huh. yeah. do good. Yeah. And three is tame your mind. And that's what meditation is yeah. for me, is to work on taming the mind and, uh -huh. you know, the, the the craziness and the negative things and trying to get a hold on them so you can behave in a way in the world that represents you better or is yeah. kinder and he wrote back very very succinct <laughs> <laughs> his which was in fact also a very succinct response yeah, to your exactly. very succinct right. response yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's um something i work on every day is uh is i use ho'oponopono prayer mantra a lot you know is that, that uh, Hawaiian? No, Hawaiian. It is, right? I've it heard is. that, yeah. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. It's just, uh, it clears the programming and it enables yeah. me to live from inspiration rather than from memory. Memory or habit, right? Yeah, yeah. or habit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, like any spiritual tradition. It's really about trying to be a better, you know, kinder person. I mean, to me, if a religion doesn't have kindness in it, then I don't know what it's about. You know what I mean? If, it, right. if it's not making you a kinder human being, then I don't know what the deal is. You know right. what I mean? And I respect any religion that, you know, preaches that or aspires to that. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, me too. That's no. what I'm, that's what I'm all about. Buddhism is not a theistic religion. Buddha wasn't a god. He was a man who attained a high level of what human potentiality is. And I like that, that it's not about, you know, uh, worshiping, you know, it's respectful, of course, but it's not, it's not a theistic religion at all. Yeah. Hmm. 
What were you before you, Buddhist? Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I was raised Catholic, but I wasn't. You know, I was I was a spiritual seeker. You know, in my twenties and yeah. early thirties, and went investigated a lot of different uh, sp- spiritual disciplines, but no, nothing really stuck till Buddhism. Interesting. What do you think it was about that that stuck? Well, I mean, first of all, it's just a, a, a rooted, authentic you know, practice that's been t- around 2,500 years and probably before that, you know, in, in other ways. But uh, I liked it because there's a practice. There's a direct method on working with yourself. Yeah. It's not just... I would read books, other spiritual things, and I'd, I'd relate, and then the book was over, and then I'd be left to my own devices again. But with Buddhism, there's an actual, you know, practice. There's things you can do. Yeah, method. Yeah. Know. And what's the method? Well, meditation's a big part of it because and, it's... And it's chanting too, right? Is um, it mantras? Or? Uh, mantras, not so much chanting, there's prayers, but mostly it's looking at your mind and watching how your Observing, mind Observing, becoming the witness yeah, of your thoughts. Of your thoughts. Metacognition. Exactly. Yeah, I I was like I was running and I and I had this insight and I feel like it's an original insight and I I was writing about it but if you can be like if you can like okay like if I'm afraid then I can say who's afraid and then I can say who's asking who who's afraid so I keep up leveling my my the perch that I'm standing on but I think of like metacognition as like a remote control car like if you're just uh, identifying as your thoughts then you're inside the remote control car and your subconscious is holding the remote and you're and, reacting and, and you're and it's just chaos it's chaos whereas if you're in metacognition and you're uh, identifying as the witness of your thoughts then you're the one holding the remote and you can see the car right and you can uh, and you can see what's coming right and your actions can be more positive yeah and hopefully. you have a window for for reaction time. exactly that's you the know. whole the whole shot right there. the whole shot yeah the whole kit and caboodle yeah basically one thing i do like about a god though is i like the energy of devotion i really oh respond. there's a lot of devotion in buddhism oh is there actually in buddhism in t- tibetan tradition which is what i practice right okay. the devotion is to your teacher even more than Buddha, because it's your teacher mm-hmm. that's giving you the Dharma, the, the teachings in this lifetime. Yeah. And a lot of and devotion, uh, there's a lot in Buddhism. It's very, very important. Yeah. It's not without, it's just because it's not theistic, it's not without devotion. It's actually, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, very critical. Right. What do you mean? Well, because it's, it's a sense of merging your mind with the mind of the teacher and the teachings themselves the, hmm. the teacher your teacher your lama yeah. is a rep, is a line, you know there's a lineage between him and the buddha you yeah. know the teachings have been passed from one teacher to the next to the next to your teacher so mm-hmm. he is the buddha yeah in essence i feel like lu is our teacher I think in a lot of ways he was a yeah. teacher i mean he inspired me to write a book yeah. i mean i don't know if i would have finished that book if it wasn't for lu uh, you know, he inspired you to make an album. Oh yeah. I mean, so that's a, that's a big deal. That's not to be you know taken lightly. No, I don't take him lightly. No, neither do I. And no. I told him that when I when I met him backstage that time, I said, you know, I said I can't really even express what your music's meant to me. I yeah, mean, it's, it's hard to really say. It's been with me so much of my adult, my whole adult life. Yeah. You know, I, I, in in a very profound way. Right. There as a companion. You know, yeah. it's interesting because he is also this char- this thing we've been talking about, like 
where the personality can outweigh the output. But his output is so extreme. And his personality is too, and people talk right. about it a lot, but yet he's not underrated. He's really not. He's seen no. as like no, he, the guy. And I he's mean, not him, confused Bob with, the, Dill- yeah, right, with yeah. the persona, whereas Kerouac was. Right. And Bukowski, I think, is that. But Lou morphed. Well, and into, Lou morphed into yeah. different personas. So yeah. like, you know. Yeah, from like the coolest dude ever to the guy with the Steinberger guitar yeah. and a what do you call it? Uh, you know, the haircut with the long in the back, the mullet. Yeah, the <laughs> mullet. Yeah, yeah. party up front, business up front, party in the back. I do think he's an <laughs> underrated guitar player. Oh yeah, I love his solos. Oh yeah, well especially on the Velvet Underground when he would do those like noise jams. I think his soloing's awesome. Yeah, I love listening to play guitar. He, uh, when he did the Jazz Foundation, he did this song, Night and Day. Not the Cole Porter one, the one that Ray Charles does. Mm-hmm. He did it with a big orchestra. But he, had, he was playing really distorted, crazy loud, like metal machine type of guitar. Mm-hmm. And it was thrilling. Yeah. Thrilling. Yeah, absolutely. I love Robert Quine. He was one of my favorite guitar From players. Ohio, too. I'm from he Ohio. Is? Yeah. He was the shit. Yeah. I thought he was incredible. This, the blue mask, you know, the yeah. work he does on that. And the, there's that live, I think it was in New Jersey, Waves of Fear uh-huh. uh, with Quine and Lou, you know, Quine's playing guitar and it's fucking great. Right it's on. It's on YouTube. Okay. I'll check that out. Yeah, really good. So, you, and you got a bunch of like movies and television shows coming out too, right? Like anything like I that? I have a you movie know? coming out like a popcorn movie with Nicolas Cage called Primal like a like a thriller type movie you say that like it's a bad thing I love a popcorn movie starring Nicolas Cage <laughs> I, do, I, I don't know if no, there's no. anything I like more than I do than say that, it like dude. it's a bad thing well but it's not it's not personal right this <laughs> right. is personal so well, yeah, I, I yeah. have a much more this yeah. is like my kid well this is That's more like, your soul yeah. like you're like you're yeah. a, you're like your lineage uh, is more like Kerouac. Like, My heroes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like you're a writer of like, you know, you're like in that realm. But I loved working but on that movie. you get to act. Too, yeah, no, and I had a fantastic. great time and I loved working with Nicholas and he was a trip and a half and really fun and very professional and really good and I, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, Well, he's a different kind of American hero. He is. He's, you know? uh, he's he, he, and he takes things takes his work really really seriously yeah and very prepared and very professional and really good what do you play in that i play a cia agent oh okay uh, he plays a big game bounty hunter like a big game hunter a big game hunter game yeah yeah like uh, exotic <laughs> game hunter <laughs> so he's the bad guy he's a bad guy maybe a good guy maybe a good guy. yeah a bag you, you get cast a lot as the cop uh figure i've get cops and robbers cops. drug a lot of drug addicts i like the drug addicts i've played a lot of drug i addicts. mean dude you played the you know the a most ton. epic one <laughs> fucking chris he was an Sopranos, epic drug addict dude. he certainly was dude know? that was great that was a lot of fun yeah i like playing stuff like because it's so extreme you know to play people that on the edge in such extreme weird circumstance it's always fun as an actor you know yeah uh that character was a lot of fun to play yeah really fun what was that like tremendous a lot it was a lot of the um 
a lot of those actors I had known from theater and independent movies. Yeah. I'd worked with a bunch of them. So it was became like a real like family thing. It was really cool. John Ventimiglia, who was there last night, he played Artie Bucco, uh-huh. the chef. Right. John and I met when I was 17 in acting school. Oh, like, I saw him. He looked like Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, he looks Still a lot right like Hunter. Dude, I, I didn't... I, oh, my God. I was like, who's this guy yeah. that is exactly... Because he yeah. had the cigarette holder and, yeah. the, glasses. and the fucking <laughs> yellow <laughs> aviators yeah. and the like the bald head. He's done some Hunter stuff, actually. Some. I lot. mean, that's that's who should be cast as the next Hunter S. No, Thompson he should. In whatever Hunter S. Thompson... He should. I mean, uh, just shout out to anyone making a Hunter S. Thompson yeah. thing. Cast... What's his name? John Ventimiglia. Yeah. He's a great actor. And we've done, we were in theater companies together. We've done indies together. We still do. Mm-hmm. We did a movie in, in Lisbon with this Portuguese filmmaker. We've done three movies with him. So he's part of my, you know, gang, you know, since the beginning. Right on. And there's a bunch of them. So then, you know, so he, I literally, I was a teenager. We were in Lee Strasberg acting school. And that's when we met. Yeah. We're still colleagues and, you know, collaborators. So when did you start going to acting school? Right after high school. Just I didn't that, go to college. You never, you skipped college. Me I too. To, I never uh, went to college yeah, either. I went to, uh, I took, was, had two teachers there and then I started meeting like him and other people and we started doing our own theater. I started producing theater like not long after that and uh, directing theater and then acting. And one guy started writing. We started producing his plays, directing his stuff. That's how What made you decide, okay, I'm going to be an actor? You know, um, I just, you know, I was thinking, well, what do I want to do? I started reading a lot of plays right. in my last two years of high school. So you were already kind of a literary person? Or I was into like it, but especially in the, my school library. I just started reading plays like Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. I fucking love like Tennessee that. Williams, too. My favorite. Oh. Yeah, he's the best. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to act or direct. I didn't know. You know, something in that. And I thought, well, maybe you should just go to acting school. And... uh Instead of college, I was going to go to State University, Albany. The night before I was supposed to leave, now it's September, after my, I graduated mm-hmm. in June, I went up for orientation. My bags are packed. My parents are giving me some cash to open a checking account. And mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I don't think I want to go. They're like, you don't want to go. You're, you're registered. We're, we're leaving in the morning. Did they pay a tuition already? Probably a or? deposit or something. Right. Uh, so How'd you have the balls to change your mind? I, I just... I wasn't happy with it. And, and your I just parents said, didn't go crazy? No, they said, listen, I get it. They said, you have to, thank God they were so loving and supportive. They said, you know, you have to follow your heart. I think you should go to college. Wow. So I said, all right, I want to go to Lee Strasberg School. They said that because they knew that that was a good acting school. And I said, I'll start college in January. So I was going to, I was going to. I went to the city right after that September and I went to NYU to look at their program. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where Strasbourg was. Like, it wasn't like you Googled stuff or whatever. So I was walking back to the train station from the village. I was walking to Grand Central, wandering through the village. And then I, I see the Irving place, which I never heard of. And then I turned the corner. I see this big flag. Lee Strasburg. I swear to God. I didn't know where I was going. I was walking to the train. That's funny Lee Strasberg Institute, and I walked in, and that was the beginning. See, that's why I believe in God, like shit like that. I'm just like, okay, you know. So I mean, yeah. I, I mean, God meaning what? Like a, a uh, just a, an. A, uh, go ahead. Would you, like, because c- in Buddhism they talk about something called Dharmakaya, right? Which is Guidance. the the un 
unborn potentiality of everything, you know, the, yeah. the kind of unifying principle and things like that. Uh-huh. The unborn sphere of phenomenon, they call it. Okay. The Dharmakaya. That, that sounds like God to me. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, mean, it's semantic. A lot of this shit is it's semantical, right? Because I'm know? not talking God like there's they, this it, being who's like us and we're in his image. Like, that doesn't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You know. Like, I honestly. Who knows? Who right. knows? You know, I just, I just feel like there's a sense of purpose and a sense of being witnessed. Of course. And a sense of presence and a sense of a conversation I have ongoing with whatever that is. That if I didn't have that, I would just be like adrift. Something higher, right? Yeah. I mean, I find this very curious, right? I mean, people, I respect your anybody's beliefs and everything. Yeah, me too. And if you're atheist, you don't believe in God, I get it. You don't believe in anything higher. What, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, but, mean, but people have no problem believing in the big bang which so there was nothing bro. and then there was some spark and then it bro. blow up and everything that's bro. as weird as bro. that's as weird as anything bro that's the weirdest that's <laughs> but the, people accept that like well that makes sense i'm like really and that's called that and that's called science that's called like, science and that's like when people like diverge those two things too like i i don't believe in god i believe in science science is the blueprint of god of course it's like i you, agree and and that big bang thing just re like on the level of reason, and I agree, if, if you don't want to believe in anything, there's a lot of reasons I get why this seems like a godless universe. Like, you know. Horrors and shoot, shootings. Mass shootings, yes, of for course. instance. God bless all those, you know. But that's victims. assuming that a god has the ability to intervene which, all the time which and I, control everybody. Yeah, and that we understand even what death is. Right. Because death might be like the biggest release in the world and the biggest gift possible. Like, right. we don't, we just don't know. It seems tragic to us. But it might not be. It's not uh, to the. It's not it, to the Tibetan Buddhists. Yeah, I. I not I, at all tragic. Right. They have no fear of it. Exactly. They're actually, they, they look at it like changing clothes. Yeah, and I, I, I'm with that. I think that's actually a real, you know. And again, that goes with witness consciousness. The more you like identify with the witness consciousness, I feel like that is that unending thing that never ends and has no beginning like if you think about it there's a certain aspect of your consciousness that's been the same exact same unchanging since when you were seven years old till now and, oh, and, that's, you, that's you know, a Buddhist belief that and, it's not and, not even before, but other lives and future lives. Well, I, that's that's where I'm going. I'm just saying, like we can kind of look back to seven or whatever, or four or five. But yeah, I think it's like unending, and I think as soon as you die, that's like if you, the more you're resonating on that unending stream, the more death will just be seamless to you. Like you, right. you won't, you might not even notice. Right. <laughs> you know, like if you're lucky. <laughs> if you're lucky, but that Big Bang thing, yeah, like it's like, dude, like. Just on the level of reason, something can't come from nothing. Right. And that's the whole theory right. of the Big Bang is something came from nothing. Right. It's like, no. Well, the Buddhists believe and, in the Big Bang, but that there's been infinite number of Big Bangs. Yeah. So the Big Bangs, and then it, it'll eventually collapse, yeah. and there'll be another one, and that's been right. eternity and will be eternity. And that's the movement of God, if you ask me. Yeah, okay, that makes I, like, sense. To me, it's like, okay, there might have been a Big Bang, but... Um, you know what 
you know, who created the Big Bang. It, that, so, nothing it, can it come just, from nothing. Exactly. Something can't come it from nothing. It just goes, it just, it's, yeah, anyway. Or when people say, well, it's, everything's just, it's all randomness. And it's like, actually, it's complete precision to think of, Dude, like, evolution and all of that. Look at your of, hand. It's so precise. There's randomness going no. on here. It doesn't seem <laughs> random to me. At like, all. You know, and yeah, exactly. It's actually <laughs> as precise as anything. It's crazy precise. Like in like, Buddhism, they say my view is as big as the sky, but my actions are as fine as a grain of sand. So like yeah. every action. Wait, say that again. My view is yeah, as big, big as the sky, the sky yeah. but my actions are as fine as a grain of sand. Because every, this is science too, uh -huh. yeah. and this is Buddhism, this is karma. This is the every action has a reaction. Yeah. That's karma. Yeah. That's science too. Uh-huh. It all, it's all the same. Everything matters. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like what we can like live within uh, temperature wise is like what? Like 15 degrees? Nothing. Is, like, nothing. <laughs> and there's like a supposedly <laughs> right. a sun 400 gazillion <laughs> right. billion miles away right, exactly. that's heating us just in this perfect, like within 20 degrees. Right. Okay. Maybe 100 degrees radius right. that we can exist in. Like that seems chaotic to you. Right. That doesn't seem chaotic <laughs> to perfection, me. Perfection. Yeah. That's like, yeah. you know. But back, so you, so you, so you walked into Lee Strasberg, yeah. and like, how do you get into that? Like, like they is, interview is, you. They interview. They didn't you. audition you. They interviewed you. They interviewed and you. wanted to see where your head was at, and uh, I started taking classes, and I had some good teachers. But really, what happened was, and I always tell people who tried because they always ask, "How do you be an actor?" I said, "Go to acting school and meet these people that you relate to and are inspired by. Stay with them, you mm -hmm. know." I'm sure it's similar with music, right? Yeah. I mean, you find your colleagues, you find people of like mind, and you... Yeah. You know. Or they find you. Or they find you. You got to resonate yeah. on a certain frequency of need, I find. Yeah, it's like people always say, it's all who you know. I said, no, it's who knows you. It's, it's not... People don't give you jobs because you're a nice guy. They right. They know you based on your work and your ability. And yeah. they, if they respect that, then they might want to work with you. It's not, I'm going to do you a favor because you're my cousin's friend. Right. That's how, that's how it works. Yeah, people get confused about that. Yeah, or they say, oh, it's luck. I'm like, well, it's not like they pick your name out of a hat to do a movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's luck if you don't get hit by a bus on the way to the audition. You know what I mean? But like, it's not like we're going to put 30 actors in here and we're going to oh pick a lucky God. one. I mean, luck? I don't know. I mean, I mean, the people that seem to work a lot are ones who are really committed and don't get discouraged and go on and work yeah. hard and are good. Yeah. Will you manifest your luck? So yeah, to speak. Yeah, exactly. It locked, By opportunity meets ability, right? Or yeah. preparedness meets opportunity yeah. is luck. That's what they say. Yeah. And the, and uh, are you like are you conscious of like do you have like manifestation practices? Because I'm like sort of sort of, I do like. Do you have you ever heard of Doctor Joe Dispenza? Doctor Joe Dispenza. He wrote That's wrote it. this book called "You Are the Placebo." I think I was trying to tell you about this when we first met, actually. Yes, I don't know what, yeah, you did. I did, didn't I? So, what is the practice like in in a well, nutshell? Well, he's got these like guided meditations on YouTube. Which, by the way, you can like learn every single thing in the world on YouTube. Yeah, you nowadays, can. I know. And uh, it's kind of like revolving around manifesting. He healed his spine that was supposedly impossible to heal. Wow. He was like a triathlete, got hit by a truck, and you know. Healed his spine through the power of his mind. Mm -hmm. The fact that placebos 
exist and work are, is proof that our minds can heal us. Right. Like the yeah. word placebo effect. Yeah. Well, a placebo is not supposed to have an effect if it's a placebo, but it does have an effect. Right. So what does that mean? It means that we're powerful. Right. Really. The mind is The mind powerful. is powerful. Yeah. So do you have any practices like regarding that kind of stuff, like manifestation practices? There are, there are, How do you there manifest are purification, all your... There are purification meditations in Buddhism. Uh-huh. Um, and they clear the way. That's what Ho'oponopono is. Yeah, there's that. And so um, there's some, there are, you know, they're meditations. They're, they're visualizations and meditations. They have to be, you have to get an empowerment to practice them, which means there's a, a, like a ritual where your teacher kind of says, okay, you can practice this now because mm-hmm. some of these things are very, there's, they're mystical and some of them can be used for nefarious um, purposes. Nefarious or, you know, Buddhism always has to have an intention of compassion behind it. It can't be, I want to meditate to be rich so I can be, you know, get a big, you know what I mean? It's like, it's purpose driven motivation. But, and the per, and there has to be, there's nothing wrong with healing yourself. That's I want to get rich so I can help people. Something like that. Something or I like want to win, you know, I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to make this much money so I can give it to this charity or give it to the something. Yeah. So, but the view they talk about in Buddhism, view always has to encompass compassion for ideally all sentient beings, right? Now I'm talking, I'm talking the tenets of Buddhism. I'm not saying I do this or I've realized, I'm not, there are lamas and practitioners that have who are very amazing. Right. I'm a, you know, I'm a, beginner you know so yeah i'm I'm talking in broad terms well you're not that much of a beginner right you've been doing this for a lot of years yeah but still compared to like right i'm not saying you're like the highest my teacher is the eighth reincarnation of the garchin rinpoche so he's been around for a thousand years that's amazing he's awesome yeah he's about 85 where's he at well he has a center in the desert in uh in Arizona, but he has, he travels a lot and teaches. He's not going to be traveling much more because he's getting very old, but he was um, born in Tibet. When the Chinese invaded, he spent 20 years hard labor in prison in Tibet and then finally was released and started teaching in India wow. and then in the West. And he's, he's a monk, but uh, high Lama, great. How'd you find him? Um, through the kind of Buddhist world, you know, uh, just started going to teachings here and people, people turn me on to different okay. you know you'd start to delve in and paths right. open up and stuff like that but yeah uh, but um basically what i'm saying is all that stuff you when know, you're ready the student or the teacher finds absolutely you. that's what they say yeah but uh it really has to be in buddhism it should things should be rooted with a sense of big view of compassion for, for all beings right but there are very specific there are Medicine Buddha meditations when people are sick, mm-hmm. you know, and that involves visualization, mm-hmm. some mantras, meditations, and stuff like that. There's lots of that stuff in Tibetan Buddhism. That's interesting. Yeah. And where do you do you practice all this stuff within a group? Sometimes settings? when I can, there's retreats. You know, where I, I did one in February, a Yamantaka. It's called retreat, which yeah. was a closed retreat. Um, practice goes 24-7. You sleep in shifts in the temple, and uh, um, you don't speak outside of the whatever scriptures you're reciting or mantras you're saying. And 
no phones, no internet. You can't. You, you surrender your phone, and it's closed. You don't. What leave. a relief that is, dude. It's fantastic. I do that every single day because I practice hot yoga every day, and I like turn my phone off for at least two hours every day. Talk about habit, right, dude? It's oh the best. God. Oh, to get away from or to like, yeah. What habit a habit of, it's become, right? And I, know, I, I lived so much of my life without it. It's I, I such an have, addiction. I didn't have a cell phone until I was like thirty-two. I make sure I like after yoga, I walk home. I don't turn it on until I'm home. But as soon as I'm home. I'm back. I'm back in the mix, checking Instagram, doing all the nonsense. Well, we do business on but, it, but right? exactly because like it's business too. And your business so. doesn't really end. It doesn't have a, it a doesn't, work day. No, so no. that's why I have to like. But at least I know I'm gonna have yeah. like at least two hours a day right. with no phone, right. and that's like hugely mentally healing. I recommend right. that because you have various projects and various stages of development that yeah. you're always checking in on and all that. Stuff. Like on the phone, yeah. yeah. That's how it is. So when you so you go to Strasbourg school, yeah. how many years was that for? I was there for two years, and then my teacher left, and I was with her for another three, four years. Yeah. But I started working uh, about four years into it. I was twenty-one. I started. I got. Is a that play. when you got Scorsese? No. That was two years after that. Twenty-one. Oh, okay. I got a play. Play. That didn't pay. I had tried. I was trying to audition out of the trade papers for plays and independent. I couldn't get anything. Finally, I get this play. Were they seeing you as talented when you were like at that school? Like, were they like, dude, my, you my got this teachers, shit? Well, they wouldn't go that far, but you right. know, I think the people who were serious and who had some talent gravitated towards each other. Right. Like, I knew Ventimiglia was talented when I met him, uh -huh. and I saw him work in class. I'm like. He had something that most of the students didn't have. Yeah. You know, so you could just see. He's like, this guy's good. Or, or as they say, real recognizes real. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I mean, but I certainly saw him. I'm like, this guy's good. There was a, there was a handful of people. That, who was that? The Ventimiglia, who, the Hunter S. Thompson oh, guy. Oh, okay, is yeah, right. So, um, so I did this. I got this play, and the play got a lot of attention before it opened. There was an article in the Times about it because it was based on a real story it involved the Westies and Hell's Kitchen and stuff. Uh -huh. I was the lead. It was off Broadway. It was a big deal. Three days, at the third performance, after the third performance, they fired me. What? Whoa. <laughs> what was the play called? Half Deserted Streets, written by a guy who eventually won the Academy Award for Crash. Interesting but, title for something that deserted you. Deserted me. Yeah, I got fired. I mean, I deserved to get fired. I did not know how to work Why? with it. I didn't know how to work with the director very well. I didn't really like the, I didn't really respect the director, but I didn't know how to, now I can work with all kinds of directors. Even if I don't get along, I know how to give them what they want and protect myself. Back then I didn't know that. So I resisted him and, uh, and I wasn't, um, you know, they fired me. You were young. I was, it was devastating though. Yeah. Cause I, I was so happy to finally have a job after four years. Right. That must have hurt. Yeah, told hurt. told your folks I got a gig. They uh, they came. They came to open the opening weekend. We I did, and then they replaced me. That must have been rough. <laughs> it was really it rough. must have been a rough couple months after horrible. that. Horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. In retrospect, did they do you a favor by firing you? Um, in retrospect, I could say yeah, because I, I you know I still had a career, but I mean I don't know. It didn't feel like it at the time. Right. But I, de I deserved it. I, I admit that. 
So and then you and then you what? How'd you get the in Goodfellas? I had done a couple of uh, indies. Which, by the way, is like one of my favorite. It's a great movie. It's one of my favorites. I, you know, uh, another student had an audition for an agent around that after I did this play. So we were working on a scene in class. He goes, "Can we do our scene for the agent?" And I said, "Yes." And the agent signed both of us. Started sending me out, and I got a part. My first movie was a movie called "Lean on Me" with Morgan Freeman, directed by John Alvidson, who did Rocky. Mm-hmm. And I had one line which they cut because I was so fucking scared. I'd never been in front of a camera. Well, dude, it's hard to do one line too. I have experience with that. I was in this movie called Hell's Kitchen, and I had one line. It's, it's not, hard, right? Not a good movie, but it was like also, yeah, to do one line. It's, it's really like, hard. There's yeah. nothing to do. There's, there's yeah. no character. There's you, like, just, you just have to say a line. And what was your like, line, Joe? <laughs> I mean it. Like it was to Rosanna Arquette, and it was about going into an AA meeting. We were supposedly in a band together in this movie, and I was like, "I mean it. This, you know, like I mean it. You got to come with me, or I'm out. Something like that." It was, and what was your line? <laughs> hey, I'm gonna be a star. <laughs> hey, and yours was prophetic. And it was horrible. They cut it because I was. I had never been in front of a camera. That was a whole that's other karma, thing. That, that's, that's karma cr- for you that that was your line. That's yeah, karma. dude. It, it was film. It was a big movie film camera with yeah, film. It in the, freaked you, know? you out. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be a star. Horrible. And the guy, you know, we did the rehearsal and he goes, hey, you with that line, you got to give me something or you're. Oh, my God. He was, he was not a nice guy. He, not nice to me, at least. But I'm in the movie, but I don't say the line. You can see me in the, in the movie. It's kind of funny. And then I did two I other little indies, and then I auditioned for Goodfellas, which was a big deal because he was a big hero of mine. Yeah. I read the book that it was based on. I auditioned for the casting person, and she, had, she said, I want you to come and meet, audition for Marty. So... I knew, you know, I knew a lot about his movies, and I knew he liked improvisation. So in my audition, I did a lot of improvisation, and he liked it. And uh, what'd you do? You know, they had us read Pesci's character. They had everybody read scenes, and I thought I was auditioning for Pesci's character. In that, in the card scene. I don't the... forget which scene. Maybe okay. in the scene that I was in. Yeah. But we all read, and I knew the character because I read the book. I uh-huh. thought, and the, in the book, the character is like twenty-one. Pesci's character. Oh, right. Interesting. Yeah, he's much younger. I didn't know that. So I thought I was auditioning for that. Oh, okay. And he was really cool. And then uh, then they said they got this part, Spider. And then I look in the book. It was like two pages in the book. I'm like, really? That's it? Like, that's how that's so dumb, you know? How, like, stupid. I'm like, that's it? All right. All right. I guess. <laughs> I haven't done shit, you know? Right. I'm already... But there is something to that. Like I had, I remember when, because when I got signed to Peter Gabriel's label, I had a similar ego vibe. Like, just I felt like I belonged. Just some you weird to, thing. You know. Like the my, like ego beyond my station. But you have to because it's so hard to get started exactly. in music it's like survival. or acting. Yeah, you have to almost delude yourself that you're so. You have to have delusions of grandeur. You, have you really to. fucking do. That's it's a rejection re- so much. And it's yeah, like you definitely have to fantasize yourself into that kind of star position. Yes, you do. Yeah, I, I, I you have to be so deluded to think that when they see me. Right. They'll get it. Because it's so... I went through... I auditioned... I don't know. Because then you end up manifesting it. Because look what happened. But I auditioned a hundred times at least before I got a job. So that's so much rejection. Yeah. You have to be so deluded. Yeah. So there is an ego there. Yeah. But that's okay. 
if it gets you through, you know, if it gets you through, you know. So what was it like when you land that part with the, like those guys making arguably one of the greatest movies of all time? You know, like it was great. that's like that's like talk about like yeah. hitting it out of the park. Yeah, no, it to, was. Like, it was a big deal for me to be with like De Niro and Scorsese. Those guys yeah. were huge to me. Yeah. Um, and Mar Marty, to his credit, and I'm forever indebted to him treated me like an actor and gave me a lot of respect and basically said um those scenes were improvised and he just said just bring the drink over to him he's gonna say something and just go with it every take was different right and then what i did was and you know i was very inexperienced in film now i'm very experienced and looking back i'm like i kind of can't believe i had the balls to do this what i did was there was a bar uh -huh. i'm a waiter right but yeah. the bar was facing away from the card table, which means I would have my back to the players, to the actors when I'm making drinks. And I said to the prop guy, I said, no, the bar has to be here, so I have to be watching them at all times. Right. I want my face on camera. <laughs> I, well, I wasn't thinking that. I'm thinking in terms of the character. I'm saying, well, the character's got to watch them because they're. You, you don't want them to wait for a drink. They're gangsters. Yeah. you got to be on pins and needles. Right. And they let me do that. And Marty said, yeah, do, do what he says. And then I said, I want to reset the props after every take, which I would never do that now. I don't know. And, and Marty said, yes, let him do it. Let him reset the props on the table. And there's a shot in the movie what? of me standing behind the bar looking at the guys. Unbelievable. Why would you, why would you never do that now? And why did you decide to do that then? Because it's a prop guy's job. Oh, I see. He's re really responsible if there's a fuck up and it's on camera and the director doesn't notice it, it's the prop guy's ass. Oh, so he's letting some 22 year old kid who's never really done movies uh -huh. take responsibility for his job. And you wanted, I didn't think it that through Did you all. want to do that because then it was like, oh, I'm in character? He this told me when I got there, he said, the only thing I asked, treat the guys like the character on and off camera, which was very liberating because now I didn't have to be this guy in awe of my acting heroes. That is liberating. I had a job to do, which was take yeah. care of the table. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's why Marty's so good, because now you're not conscious of being Michael, the actor with the greatest actor in movies. You're the waiter, and you're, tr you're dealing with simple realities, which as an actor you need to be rooted in to be truthful and be free. Dealing with simple realities. Yeah, and be free, not feel pressure. Feel like this guy is treating me with respect like an actor. I feel comfortable. I'm going to take chances. I'm going to take risks. Yeah. When they're mean or they shut you down, you close up because you're yeah. very vulnerable as an actor. Yeah, you, you clam up. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's you. You don't have something, you know, it's not. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's you. Yeah. So when, when, you, when people are disrespectful or not patient, you close up. And right. You don't take chances. Your performance is not going to be as good. Yeah. In the back of your mind, did you still have that fear of getting fired because of the previous gig? Probably. I don't, I don't remember that, but probably. But I, a really funny thing happened. The second day was the second scene when I get killed, right? right. So uh, the stunt is they're going to put, they're gonna, I get shot, I go flying in the bar and hit the ground. And I said, they had a stuntman there, and I said to Marty, I want to do the stunt, which I don't do, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> That's you, a stupid thing. Why? Because <laughs> they're stuntmen. Because you get hurt. But when you're young, you think that that's important. I don't know, whatever. But I said, I, I want to do the stunt. And he was happy about that. Yeah. 
So what well, makes it look more real, probably? If it, depending on how you're shooting. And what so, was the stunt? Was me back, getting shot? Getting shot. Fall, uh, like kind of jerking backwards, hitting the bar. Yeah. And then hitting the ground. Uh, so that was they kind of to, was, hitting the bar. Yeah, they had to pad could, my back up. I had to go backwards. Uh huh. Um, but but the only thing the fuck up was, I was bringing a drink to the table when I get shot, and the prop guy didn't replace my glass with a breakaway. Mm. So when I hit, I do the stunt. The blood goes, explodes. They have blood packs and squibs. Wow. I hit the ground. The glass breaks, and two of my fingers get sliced open. Wow. So I'm lying on the ground, and everyone goes, don't move, don't move, because somebody saw what happened. And everyone comes over, and I'm and like, don't move. My hands, and I look up, and I see De Niro looking down at me like, you know, <laughs> like, that looks bad. Oh, really? So they, they rush me. The PA gets me in a car, and they drive me. We were in Queen, Massapeth, Queens. They drive me to hospital. Uh-huh. And I walk in, and I, I said, I, I, I cut my hand. Uh, you know, making a movie like shut up, quiet, code blue, stat. They bring a stretcher because I have three bullet holes with blood everywhere. Oh my God. They think I was shot. <laughs> they think I'm about to die. Right. They take me, wheel That's me into the operating hell. room, won't listen to anything I'm saying, and they start cutting my shirt. And they see the squibs and the wires, and I'm like, I told you, I'm doing a movie. They thought it was delirious. <laughs> That's crazy. I said I'm doing a movie. I cut my finger. Like they put some tape. They're like, we'll stitch you up. Go sit in the corner for like three hours. Oh man. And uh, and then I went and. Went back and shot it again a couple of times. Oh, really? But that first takes in the movie. That's funny as hell, dude. They, it was they, really they, funny. They, they thought you got shot. And it I, you would have thought, I mean, anybody would have thought that because literally there were three bullet holes with a shitload of blood. Yeah. And it looked like, you know, and it was it was kind of a rough neighborhood wherever we were. Nobody, the like, was. Took, nobody wheeled you in or took you in. Who took you in? The uh, PA drove me and we got to the hospital and then some, I was talking to whoever was outside and then they put me on a stretcher. Oh right, I see. Like they wouldn't, uh, li they wouldn't listen to what I was saying. They wouldn't listen to the guy. They just thought I was about to die. That's crazy. That was crazy. It really was. Did you learn anything? Uh, did you ask De Niro or Pesci any questions and learn anything from them, or was there no, not much contact? I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to relate to them as actors because Marty said not to. I see. But I watched a great deal. And I, what I learned from De Niro was um, to uh, when you're on set, right? Because there's the set, right? So there's a room mm -hmm. that's set up to look like a card room. Then outside of that is like the crew. Like there'll be like the other camera parts and the prop cart and, you know, the craft service table, which is right off set. But when you are on set and there, the lights are there, you conserve your energy. And De Niro, once in between takes, he would walk away from the set because the set is very tense, right? Yeah. There's a lot of energy there. Yeah. He'd walk away. He wouldn't stand there and make small talk, make jokes, dissipate his energy. And when he'd come back and they were ready to shoot or lining up the shot, he'd mm -hmm. start dealing with his props. Like he'd pick up his drink or he'd pick up his cigarette lighter or the cards. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it was very, it looked like someone really conserving energy and keeping things very kind of, so so all the energy would go towards the performance rather than be dissipated in the daily mundane things that could take because it's shootings long days you know yeah. so you might do a close-up of a big important scene 12 hours into your day so you better have stuff in the tank damn that that's insanely awesome to hear that's like really you could apply that across your whole life on so many different levels that because I, I box and and i remember like 
every time I would spar, I would just get so tired and I would ask my trainer like, dude, why, like I can run five or 10 miles. Like I trained hard. I could like jump rope for five rounds or whatever. Like, but when I would spar for one minute, dude, one (laughs) round, I'd be like, uh, like just out of gas. Like it'd be crazy. And, uh, it didn't make any sense because I was definitely doing enough cardio for that not to be the case. And he said, it's because you're all tense and you never, you got to relax between, but like you, you have to find moments of relaxation with even within sparring. Right. If you're always tensed up, like that, that wastes so much energy. So when you said that, it just that like makes a lot of sense. Brought me right to that. I mean, like with musical performance, right? When you're going to do a show, yeah, right? exactly. That space from the time you get on stage, yeah. once you hit the stage, right? There's, yeah. it's it's not just you playing music. You're you, you're going to a place, right? Yeah, of course. Here. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, you know, you're not gonna like fuck around in between. I mean, you you know what I'm saying? It's like. There's a seriousness to that space. Absolutely. That, you know, it's not, your actions between songs are not superfluous. There's not a, I think, you know, your body knows mm-hmm. after doing it for so long that this is special, that yeah. moment. It's not just ordinary time. No, and you can tell before a show and everything like that as well. Like there's this very uncomfortable energy to that. Do you like to eat before a show or no? I mean, yeah, I like to like just make sure I'm taking really good care of myself, you know, in terms of in terms of everything. I like to make sure I get a really good night's sleep. I but like right to, before you go on, you're not you don't like. No, nah, I don't want to be full. No, no. Nah. But a I couple of hours before. A couple of hours before. Yeah, uh-huh. just so that's not a factor. So you're not digesting. I don't want to be hungry either, and right. I definitely want to make sure, you know, that. I, I mean. That yeah, all my energy's in line. I mean, I, I I think about energy all the time, lately, especially like you know, when you get into your older or n- not that like we're not really old, but like middling years or whatever, where it's like, uh, you know, energy's such a factor across all walks, and like even when you consider like the condition of narcissistic personality disorder and those type of beings that feed off of the energy of other people, like the, the fact that there's like a lot of vampire consciousness out here too. And um, are you familiar with any of like Napoleon Hill's work, like Outwitting the Devil or Think and Grow Rich? I've heard of him. In I don't think, know his stuff. Yeah. yeah, he's from like, you know, 1930s or whatever. But in Think and Grow Rich, he has a whole chapter on sexual transmutation. You ever, do you ever heard anything about that? Like, the concept oh, yeah. now kids are calling it nofap where it's like no porn yeah. no masturbation conserving your energy and like using sexual transmutation to do things creative to be process, cre- like to yeah. like refocus all that energy towards creativity and and because that energy needs to express itself right of course so well, that's that's a very ancient principle well that's true that's yeah tantric practice exactly like that. but now now the kids call it no, no fap. fap yeah which it's is like a which, straight edge without you know which is awesome yeah it's own, the, it's a different version of straight edge right? yeah well you know i mean think of boxers you mean in raging yeah, bull there's Tyson. that great scene oh, yeah. when he dumps the ice water on his heart on you know oh, yeah. his, uh, yeah. <laughs> his wife wants to have sex and he's yeah. you know or rocky women weaken legs M- miles yeah. said that smiles <laughs> miles Davis Davis. Said, he goes you can't come and play yeah 
you can't come and then go play music. Well, yeah, the, like the if you if you hold it and maintain it, there's just a force with what you're working right. with that doesn't exist otherwise. Right. You know. And if you like he was saying the day before a performance he wouldn't he couldn't have an orgasm because it would just take way too much energy away takes from takes away the fire. Right, especially like you said as you get older. Yeah. You know. Exactly. He performed till he was, you know, he performed for a long time. Well, there's that Mantak, I forget his name, Mantak, Mantak Chia. Exactly. He wrote that multi-orgasmic male. Yeah, the Tao of sexual Transmut trans yeah. transmutation. Yeah. It, it, but it, he's got uh, like actual rule book. Like if you're like if you're in your late forties, you're only supposed to like let's say let it out once every month. Right. That's it. Good luck, <laughs> dude. <laughs> it's yeah. It's easier said than it's done. A, it's all easier said than done. But they're good things to. I think start to think about and try to implement, you know, for, yeah. like, for you know, just for health in general. Yeah, know? absolutely. As you age, you know, when you're young, you just your resources are like limitless, and as you get old, they're limit, yeah. limited, right? You have to just yeah, yeah, conserve, conserve, and well, you understand the value of energy right. and like the fact, like, well, you're talking about like De Niro, no, like you know, just really focused on energies and like that's what it looked like to me sensitive yeah. yeah you know i mean yeah i mean he he took yeah exactly you know and uh i oh. think so when you get older you're more wise hopefully and you've learned and experienced stuff so you want to have the energy to be able to use that wisdom and experience in your work right and that you right. can't do that if you're dissipated by yeah. you know, other stuff or you can but it might not be as effective right or yeah what about joe pesci did you learn did you observe him in any kind of capacity he was a lot more um he was very funny he was joking around all yeah, the time he's more of a card right he's more uh, i mean he was you know he was very kind and uh he was so good in that movie yeah well, well how is he so menacing like, he gets it. I think he he gets it, and he was been around it. You know, I think he yeah. grew up. You know, I mean, he was part of the Jersey Boy. You know that movie. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew the Four Seasons when they started, and whoever yeah. the wise guy was involved with them. He, I think he, he come from that Newark, New Jersey. He wasn't a gangster, but he. I'm sure he knew them right. back then. He was yeah. around that world, so he understood that you know mentality and what that edge between menace. And breaking balls and intimidation, but also weird humor. I mean, he, you know, he got that. Yeah. He's really good at it. Yeah. So what was it like? How did you end up working with Spike Lee? Well, he, uh, he was doing a movie called Jungle Fever, and he was casting it right at the time Goodfellas was screening because he was friends with Scorsese. So, oh, okay. so he saw an early screening of Goodfellas. And a lot of people from Goodfellas wound up being in Jungle Fever because there were a bunch of Italian-Americans, and we just hit it off. And I've done six projects with him over the That's years. That's incredible. Yeah, Because yeah. he's another great director, a great American great. director. And another guy who gives you a lot of, you know, wants you to be creative, you know, yeah. wants you to come up with ideas, you know, and uh, he's he's been a great uh, great influence and, and, and ad, you know, somebody I really... I'm grateful, you know, yeah. to have in my life, yeah. And you wrote wrote for him too? Yeah, well there was uh I wrote 
uh, a movie called Summer Sam with a, with a writer yeah. named Victor Calicio, who's really very talented writer, and uh, it's actually Victor's idea, and he wrote the first draft of it, and then we started collaborating on it. And originally, I was gonna, I brought it to Spike to for me to direct, uh -huh. and Spike said he would executive produce it, but we couldn't get a deal with me as a director, and the project kind of stalled, and it was dead for a while. And then Spike said, you know. Um, how would you feel if I directed it? And I was like, which kind of shocked me because mm -hmm. it wasn't usual for him. Yeah, at the time, up until then, most of his stuff was really focused on you know African American yeah. characters and issues and stuff like that. But they were also very New York movies, most of them, mm -hmm. really yeah. New York. And he grew up in the '70s, and I was like, actually, that makes total sense. Right. So it was a blessing. Yeah. 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 That is a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. We screened it uh, last year at the Metrograph. Like I think it was in an anniversary screening. I hadn't seen it projected in a long time. And it was, uh, you know, you never know how stuff ages. And uh, it was really fun to see it. And How did it age? I thought it aged really fucking well. Yeah. I mean, in a way, um, I appreciated it a lot more now with some distance. Because when something comes out, there's so much pressure. And then the reviews and people hate it. And some people like it. And right. then after a while, there, were, there was a lot of young people there who were maybe not even born when it was released. Yeah. And there was a, a teenager who wants to be, he's a senior in high school, wants to be a filmmaker. And he was just like, his mom took him and he came up to me after. He was just like, <gasps> this the best movie I ever saw. I mean, there's yeah. a lot in, there's so much life in that movie uh -huh. that Spike put. I mean, it's, there's this great montage to Bob O'Reilly. And yeah. it's, it, and it played the whole song. From the beginning to end, it's loud yeah. and it's colorful. It's I, I love it. I mean, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I think Spike did a really cool, good job. What'd you learn from Spike? <sighs> you know, uh, loyalty. Because he said to me when we did Jungle Fever, he goes, "We're gonna work again." And I was like, "Yeah, you know." And you hear that and stuff like that. And yeah. he, um, he six, meant it. Six he meant it. That's big in this business because it's really rare. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, I wanted, when I wanted to direct it, there was a woman who was the production designer from I Shot Andy Warhol, another indie that I did, and another woman who was the DP mm -hmm. on I Shot Andy Warhol and the same other indie. And I wanted to work with them, and Spike hired both of them. You know, he usually worked with a lot of people that were, sometimes he would hire from people who were, uh, you know, starting with him and moving up the ladder through his movies. And I, you know... I recommended them and he hired both of them. And when I thought, you know, that's really cool. Like, cause he somehow believed in my vision of it. Mm -hmm. He also shot the, you know, most of the movie was set in the Bronx written for this particular cul-de-sac street. That's right on the, um, on the water and Throg's neck over there. He shot on that block. Wow. He shot on that block where it was written with people in that neighborhood as extras and stuff. Yeah. That was cool. That is cool. He said, ah, it's, it doesn't look like that anymore. It's better if we shoot it in Brooklyn on this street. It's easier to get perm. You know, it's like, no, we shot on that block. Yeah, because he believed in the spirit of it. Yeah. Interesting. Great. Yeah. You know, and that's Spike Lee. You know, he's a big, he was a big director at the time. You know, yeah. it wasn't about his ego. I, I know what to do. He's like, all right, what are these guys thinking of? Let's make it happen. Yeah. You know, and then he made it his own after. It was yeah. great. I love to do the right thing. And Malcolm X. Phenomenal movies. Yeah. You're in Malcolm X. I have a uh, little scene as a reporter. Yeah. yeah. Do the Right Thing, I, I saw um, 
the day it opened on a Friday in New York, I had not met Spike. Uh -huh. I had not been in his movies. And I went to see it in the village. Uh, and there was a lot of tension because people were afraid there were going to be race riots. Right, yeah. That it was going to incite people to violence. I remember yeah, energy like that. And around. you could feel it because it was like a 7 o'clock show, Friday night, the first day. Uh, and we were in the audience, packed, mixed people, races and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we left that theater more united than when we went in. And right. I thought, that's powerful. That is powerful. We left that theater with more understanding of each other. Mm. That was beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. That's still my favorite of his. It's great. It's great. Yeah. It's so It's just so colorful and just bursts off the screen with life. Totally. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, have you ever heard of this writer named Dr. Gabor Mate? Because he wrote this book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. So I was wondering, because uh, you have that movie that you the direct. Hungry Ghost the Hungry is, Ghost is a, is a it's a realm in Buddhism. Yeah. Okay. That you know, uh, there's the animal realm, right? Yeah. You can, so when you, they say in Buddhism, it's actually very difficult to get a human body. Uh huh. That I, I, human, I bet it is. That a human body is the result of merit cultivating merit in past lives because there's much more insects you, if you want a dog body there's those are a dime a dozen or insects but a human there's way body? more insects <laughs> and then if you think about all the world systems throughout the universe so wait I, I was trying to make a joke and cut you off a little bit what were you saying no about but the, that's true he, the human what, body the thing joke though? you said is true oh, okay there that's, are more animal. there are more insects and more, more animals but yeah I, I wasn't listening to what you were saying though about the human when i was like thinking about this joke because uh you have, you know, the faculties to achieve enlightenment in the human body, whereas animals don't. Oh, I see. Right. So, so it's a, it's a rarefied gift. This is what right. bugs me about apathy. Like when I when I when I see like apathetic people, I'm just like, man, this life every day feels like an opportunity to me. Like now, but yeah, and, and it is. But sometimes it's hard to. Uh, like you said, you know, before, like break out of the, the habitual patterns, like you, mm -hmm. you know, that reset that we try to get to. But sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. And there's a lot of brainwashing going on that limit humans. Yeah. And listen, you, you, where, where artists is a different kind of exist. You know, yeah. you're, you're not working nine to five. No, we're and very you're lucky. Driving, uh, you know, that's true. Whatever it's, you know, and, and, and feeding your family and coming home and dealing with, you know, it's like. hundred percent. It's not easy to, not. you know step out of it you know people and that's true it's hard yeah it's not and easy. it's getting harder all the time but there are more resources now like with like educating yourself through youtube Absolutely. and stuff like that so yeah gabor Mate, his book i think that's how you say his name in the realm of the hungry ghost that's all about addiction so uh, is yeah. that is that where the hungry ghost what's the yeah the movie it deals with addiction in a lot of ways oh, okay. the, the hungry ghost realm these are these beings with very big stomachs and very little mouths and necks but they have huge appetites huh. but because their mouth and neck is so tiny yeah they can't consume what their appetites desire that's right? like addiction in a nutshell that's addiction in a nutshell yeah and those are very ancient concepts so that's i don't know if they were about addiction or just greed or just desires that can't be fulfilled but they are addictive yeah and what and what drew you to that concept or, or was that the name of the script or that was the name of the movie the first i i wrote that just as i started 
going to Buddhist teachings. I didn't know a lot about Buddhism then. It was a lot about, a lot of it's about spiritual confusion more than mm-hmm. anything. Right. But a lot of it's about addiction based on just things I've, that I've seen and people right. I've known and watched and saw things happen. You know? Do you deal with addiction at all or are you um, free and clear of that? Uh, I think we all deal with it on yeah, some level. That's true. Um, you know, I've dealt with, I've dealt with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. Yeah. I've <laughs> tell, dealt with it. Tell me later. Yeah, man. I've dealt with it. Well, man, we've been going a while, so we should probably wrap it up because I don't want to exhaust you. I have one. Did question. we start yet? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we, let's see what time. <laughs> I, yeah, we I started. Have, I think. Uh, someone, Are we rolling? <laughs> we, we've been rolling. Someone who, we've been going for like an hour 45. Someone who yeah. uh, helps us sometimes with research had one question for you, and he asked me if I would ask mm-hmm. it. It was about your role in The Office, that one episode you did on the final season. How did you get... Why did you they, do that? I had never saw the office. I saw the British one, which I love, but I never watched the American one. But they uh, they wanted to cast a, somebody who did martial arts, so they looked up actors who have black belts, and they called me. And you I have a black said, belt? In Taekwondo, yeah. So you they do. Asked, so they you asked, could totally kick my ass. I don't know about that. I yeah. bet you You're a boxer. <laughs> well, bro, I'm a... I'm a you know, so they said, know. do you want to do this belt. a day on The Office? And I thought it was funny, and I just went and did it. That's how it happened. But that the Rain Wilson, I guess, wrote the scene, or was one of the... The actor wrote it, and he said... I said, why did you call me? He goes, well, we looked up actors who have black belts, and we saw your name, so we asked That's fantastic. (laughs) So how'd you get your black belt in that? We started doing martial arts 2002 down in... uh, There's a guy in Tribeca called... Uh, Grandmaster Kang. Uh-huh. We're still really good friends. And he's, Grandmaster Kang? That sounds like tremendous. Big Daddy Kang. He's tremendous. <laughs> and his family Grandmaster teaches. Grandmaster Flash. He's, he's down on Broadway on White Street. He's great. Uh-huh. A good friend and a, just a great guy. How did you start that? Uh, my kids start... I, my, my middle child was like five and he just needed something like that. We mm-hmm. walked by it and he went and then... My daughter went, and then I went, then my wife went, and my youngest. So all of us. It was a family thing. We all did it. Yeah, we all, we do something different now because I live a lot in California. Uh, I did for like seven years. This year I started living both places. Uh, so I went back to Grandmaster this year, uh-huh. and uh, we did a different martial art in California called Subakdo, which is also a Korean martial art, but it's a little more formal than Taekwondo. It's almost like Taekwondo meets Tai Chi. Mm-hmm. It's a little softer than Taekwondo. Yeah. A little e- easier uh, on your joints as you get older. But I still work out with Grandmaster Kang. I, I love, uh, yeah. I like Taekwondo a lot. It's good, good mental discipline. I think it kind of opened, I think it led me in a way to Buddhism and meditation because it, it started me to like yeah. clean up and take care, better care. Right. And the, the, the Eastern philosophies of it I really liked. Yeah. Yeah, boxing has done that for me. Like, you know, and I, I like I like having like the yoga practice, but I like having uh, the the yin and the yang of boxing yeah. and yoga. You know, I, li- I, I like the, you know, that's why you said when you talked about sparring that I know exactly what you mean, because I could yeah. do forms and all that stuff for hours. And then yeah. you just you do two minutes of sparring. You want to drop dead. Right. And you're, you're drenched. Like, and yeah. Like and when you're practicing all your forms and shit, yeah. like in your mind, you're like, man, I might be like the greatest right. boxer ever. <laughs> like, you, like in right. your mind, you're like, wow, I probably right. I probably should go pro in this. And then a minute in then, sparring. In a minute in sparring, you're like, why am I doing this as you're getting punched in the face? You're dead. Like, yeah. It's like, wow. What no, the? I get that. <laughs> it's like, I get that 100%. <laughs> 
it's pretty funny, man. Yeah, like Lou was way into Tai Chi. Are you getting? Are you going in that realm? More, I've never you know? done Tai Chi. Yeah, I me think neither. It's, I, I, I see I, it I like when I run. It. Like I see like people practice it in yeah. groups, like on the East River I, and in, it's, in I Chinatown. Always, they do. Yeah, it in Chinatown Park there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's nice really to cool. look at. You know, for me, martial arts, uh, as well as Buddhism, right? It's really about the teacher. I think all the disciplines have their merits and advantages, yeah. but if you find a good teacher, right, that's the that's that's when you when it really kind of benefits you. I think. Yeah, you you're know? right, because they're. It's not even so much about necessarily whatever it is. No. It's more, yeah, it's more like just the wax on, wax off type of yeah, shit. Yeah, and what they're giving you, you know, what they're, you know, <laughs> teachers are big time, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Especially something like that, because it's not just about the physicality. There's a mental mm. thing to it, too, right? Yeah, that's true. I guess boxing, too. I've never done boxing, but I'm sure that has yeah, it, too. It's a martial art. It's the yeah. same, same. I think I, I imagine it's similar. Yeah. You know, it's like learning. Yeah, combinations yeah. and you know little subtle adjustments and all this other. Right. You know, repetition, the balance of it. It's a lot like yeah. learning how to play guitar. Right. You know, doing things slowly until you can kind of speed up. Right. You know? I don't know. It's interesting. Well, damn, that was great, man. That was a lot of fun. Thank Michael, you, Joseph. thank you for doing yeah, this. Yeah, it was my and pleasure. Congratulations on your book. Thanks, brother. It's really great. Thanks. Um, Where can people follow you oh, online? Yeah. Or do you do all your not league. partake? Really? I got my my sons. I told them to set up an Instagram because I don't have any social <laughs> media. So I told the, the, the boys, I said, make something so I can invite people to things and stuff. Right. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if they've done it yet or anything. But you can get, you know... People want to get the book. They can go to Akashic website or your local bookstore. Independent bookstores are a good thing. Support them. Yeah, and this um, book is really worth it. You know, it's really good. Cool. High Thanks. recommendation. Go get it. Thank you, sir. All right, man. All right. We'll see you again. I hope. Hi, this is Joseph Arthur. Thanks for checking out Come to Where I'm From. Please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash come to where I'm from. We are an independent podcast and any contributions you can make are greatly appreciated.